Welcome to the Granary Church podcast. We're happy you could join us. For more information on the Granary Church, head to granary.org.au or follow our socials at the Granary Church. Well, I'm so glad to be back. I've been in the UK for the last seven weeks and I got back at 2am on Thursday and um, it feels pretty funny to be sleeping under the fan when a week ago I was like I had a Spencer and a jumper and a coat and a hat and a scarf and walking crunching across the grass that was just ice. Uh, So it's been a bit, it's a bit of a change really. Anyway, I'm here and I'm so glad to be home. We're talking about growing faith today and I love that because the Lord keeps helping me grow in faith and I think that he wants to do that with all of us. So we're living in a season of very deep uncertainty. Nothing is the way that it used to be and the truth of it is we can't rely on it staying even the way it is now. Change is here to stay. But in the midst of uncertainty, God is at work in every people group and every nation and he's still writing his story and we are part of that story. And the thing about his story is that it's not just historical and it's not just behind us but his story is also in front of us. Through every generation he's used all kinds of people to write and to tell his story. Moses and Abraham and Deborah and David and Priscilla and Martin Luther and Martin Luther King and Hannah Moore, Desmond Tutu, they're just names that we know. But there are trillions of other names of people who have surrendered their lives to God and allowed him to use their lives to write his story. And the truth of it is that every person is invited to add their narrative to this grand chronicle that is his story which unfolds in every island and continent, in every town, in every tiny village. God wants to use us. And if we're willing, we are the pencils and the pens that he uses to write his story. We don't control the narrative, but he gets to use us. And so imagine the greatest story ever written. Now set aside the Bible. What do you reckon is the greatest story ever written? Narnia. Love Narnia. Okay, so let's go for Narnia because I can't, I can't remember who wrote Biggles. So imagine C.S. Lewis is at home and there's a knock on his door and when he opens the door there's this crowd of reporters and they've got, they've got you know, their microphones and they've got their notepads and they're like, we're here to interview the writer of Narnia. And he's saying, oh, well, you know, he's trying to say it's me. But they just push past him and they go into his study and they pick up all the pens and the pencils and they're like, which one wrote Narnia? Well, no, that doesn't happen, right? Because they were just the pens and the pencils that C.S. Lewis used. But C.S. Lewis is the writer. Well, it's the same with God's story. He just uses us. We're just the pens and the pencils and the keyboards and the typewriters. But God is the writer of the story, which is pretty amazing because the story says a lot more about the writer than it does about the pen that was used. And it's an amazing story. It's written in bright letters, multi-shaded, multi-sized, diverse shapes, gold and red and black and beautiful, pale as the dawn, vivid as the sunset. And the backdrop is sometimes beautiful and it's sometimes bleak or boring 
or terrifyingly dark, but God wants to write his story using us and using the love and the sacrifice of faith of people's lives who let him use them. So he wants to create beauty and joy despite the horror or the monotony of the background because the story is about powerlessness and might. It's about weakness and strength, about fullness and emptiness. Yet through it all, it's a story of God's faithfulness and it testifies his love and his grace to a world that has no other hope except the church of Jesus Christ. Now the world doesn't know that, but sadly the church often doesn't know it either. Christians can be used to write the story, whether we feel relevant or not, whether we feel powerful whether we feel good enough or not, because God uses his people to change the world. And the whole point of that is for us to understand that he will use us when we're surrendered to him. Now, have you ever noticed that the book of Acts doesn't finish off? It just ends one day. So Paul had gone to Rome willingly, knowing he was going to die there, and he's under house arrest for a couple of years, he holds home groups. Home groups are just so vital. And he holds connect groups all through that two years that he's imprisoned. And then it just finishes. He doesn't say, see you later, guys. I'm, you know, I'm going to die. Nothing. It doesn't finish. And that's because the book, what we call the book of the Acts of the Apostles is incorrectly named because it's the book of the Acts of the Church or the acts of the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't finish because now on the 19th of February 2023, the book of the acts of the church and of the Holy Spirit continues to be written. It's the mandate of the church to reach the world with the good news of sins forgiven. Now John chapter 3 verse 16 says that God so loved the world that he sent his son. And John chapter 20 verse 21 says, As the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. He said, Go and make disciples of all nations, beginning where you live and work. And most of us are never called to leave our nation. Some of us are not called to leave our town, but we're all called to influence the world around us by faith, writing his story, painting his love for the world by faith. We are the brush, the world, whatever our situ- whatever is happening in the world, that is the canvas. And so our revelation of our role in God's purposes will shape the effectiveness of our part in his story, his, the history of the church of Jesus Christ as it reaches the world. And as our understanding of how he can use us expands, more of the story takes shape. Now, don't be confused. It's not a story of war. It's not about the Crusades that tried to inflict not love but hate and genocide on people groups. It's not about the religious wars in Ireland and in Croatia because that's just religion. It's not about the polarisation that has taken place even in our generation in the last couple of years about who or who is not a Christian or whether or not we get vaccinated or any of those other things because his story is written in love, not in hate. It's written in sacrifice, not in fear-mongering. Now, I don't think that God has an issue with differences in opinion, but he definitely isn't up for people weaponizing the gospel to prove their point. 
So does God need us to write his story? Yes, he does, because right from the very beginning, he made a choice not to do it alone. He wants to work alongside us to change the world. And so he uses weak and broken people like us, and he writes the story very differently to what, how we would write it or what we would expect. I'm going to read this passage to you, and I want you to pay attention particularly to the last part of it and think through. When you read your Bible and you see that something doesn't quite fit with what you know about it in another place, don't just gloss over the top of it and just hold to, hold to two opinions because that's called cognitive dissonance. It means you can't hold two opinions easily. Ask questions of the scriptures when, when you read them. So it says here in Romans chapter 4, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now here's where we start to listen specifically. Without weakening in his face, faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's room was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his face, faith. It's hard to have a lisp when you're talking, right? Strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Do you think Paul knew the story of Abraham? Well, I mean, like, what does he mean without weakening in his faith? Abraham never wavered, right? Don't let me sort of over, trample over the top of your illusions at this point, but let's think about this. Verse 20 and 21, it says, Without weakening in his faith, it says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. Is that true? No, that's not true. That's not the truth. He stumbled awkwardly through a life of faith before and after God gave the promise that he waited for because Abraham was just like us. God called him to get up, leave his security and his commonplace life and go and do something completely outside of his desire and his capacity and his comfort zone. And on the way, he went through all sorts of trials and tests and he passed some, but some of them he failed miserably. He acted out of cowardice and fear and sentimentality and a longing for peace, which many just gave in no matter what, in some circumstances, not in all of them. He gave his wife away twice rather than risk a fight. And listen, he became a rich man in doing that. And if you don't believe me, you can have a look at Genesis chapter 12 and verse 15 and 16 that says Abraham became rich because the king he gave his wife to poured out money and flocks and all the rest of it. Now, I could have a lot to say about that, but that's not what we're preaching about. So he capitulated to the idea that maybe God 
wanted to use ordinary means to give him the son of promise, cultural means of just getting another, another woman and having a baby that way. And he ended up with terrible family conflict that still endures today. Now, I've got three sons and I can tell you a bit about family conflict, right? They've, they've all grown up now, but the conflict hasn't necessarily totally finished. But the point of that is that many times he behaved like a man of God and many times he didn't because heroes can be villains sometimes and villains can be heroes sometimes because there's some of both of those things in all of us, every one of us. So despite all that, he received what God promised him, which is, was to become the father of the people of God. But he often messed up. He froze and he failed and he faltered. But Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit, says, Abraham was never in unbelief concerning the promise there. So he was in unbelief. We know he wavered. Sometimes he wavered so much that he just about fell over. But he continued through to the end. And that is the amazing, incredible, grace-filled thing about what happens when God tells your story. The only thing that God remembers is that Abraham never wavered because he's a God who not only forgives, but he also forgets. And so for us to understand that, all God wants from us is that we get up one more time than we fell down. He knows we're going to fall down. That thing about his story, his story is historical, but it's also our future. And he knows all of it. And he knows when we will fall down in our future as well as in our past. And yet still, all he asks from us is not to fall down because we do, but that we just get up one more time than we fell down. And so, you know, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And let me just stop at that point and say, this is a prophetic season for the church of Jesus Christ right now, is that we are a tent-dwelling people, not an ivory tower-dwelling people. And God is calling us to keep moving forward, looking for a city whose maker and builder is God. We don't know where we're going. All we know is that we're following the Lord. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. So he didn't live in a palace, though there were a lot of palaces around at the time. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. God's promise in Abraham's lifetime was a tent city. And our promises from God don't generally look like what we expected either, but they're only a pit stop. Our journey of faith is only a pit stop on our way to the city whose maker and builder is God. That's the destination. So don't fret that your promise doesn't look glamorous or fair or comfortable because God is not fair. God is just. He is a just God and his plan for our, for our place in his story is far larger than whether we are comfortable or powerful or important or even free in society's ideas of what those things represent. 
See, Christianity was never meant to be safe and conservative. It was always intended to be a life of expansion, of faith, of going out and doing something that we've never done before, of being someone we never thought we could be, of living for a purpose that given our natural tendencies we would never consider. It's about living larger than we really are. And so the promise isn't what we imagine it will be when we obey the call. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going and he lived in a tent and he was ready to get up and move when God told him to because he was looking beyond the promise. He was looking beyond the promise of the sun. He was looking to a city that God had promised to build using him. He wanted God to design his life, but it wasn't what he would have chosen for himself. You know, it wasn't what his own efforts would produce. He, he lost interest in what he could get and keep for himself and he forsook all that for the amazing honour of being used by God to write his story. Now, some people might think that he settled for less because he was just a nomad while it seemed all the important people lived in the palaces. But his life here was merely a journey to that city whose maker and builder was God. It's what he was born for and it's what we are born for. The, the, the journey we're on now is so short in comparison to the lifetime we will lifetime to the eternity that we will spend with God in that city that he built for us. And so it's incredibly important for us to understand that what can often happen is we can make a great beginning, but for whatever reason, the whole nomad thing, the lack of comfort, the sense of powerlessness that so often accompanies living for the purposes of God, of not being able to make happen the thing that you want to happen, begins to corrode faith and people can lose heart and they can lose hope. Don't stop in the middle of the journey of faith. Keep going. All we have to do to succeed is get up one more time, then we fall down. If you fall down 1,530 times, make sure you get up 1,531 times. A million times, get up a million and one times. We see how much Abraham failed, but God didn't see it that way. Because God's perspective is altogether different. Hebrews 11 verses 32 to 34 says, And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon and Barak, and by the way, Deborah and Jael, and Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Now when we read the story, we see that Gideon and Barak were both afraid to go to war. Samson's womanizing destroyed him. Jephthah sacrificed his own daughter. David had major issues. Yet all God remembers is their faithfulness and their heroism because God has got a great deal more grace than we do. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, 
since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's them and that's all the people you love who died in Christ. They're our witnesses and I can see them sometimes up there and they're, they're in the stands and they're watching us run and they maybe see us fall over and they're there and they say, get up, Bev, get up. Come on, Bev, you can do it, Bev. Get up, get up. They're doing that with every one of us. They're calling for us to get up and it says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of faith for the joy set before him he endured the cross we have we all have a cross more than one over a long period of time but he there was joy the joy set before him and so he scorned its shame and he ended up sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, the stories that I, I read are stories of appallingly massive failures in people but they should give us courage and strength for our own race because their failures aren't highlighted. Only their faith is highlighted. It's not a race against other people. It's a race that only we can win. We can give up and stop running or we can run with endurance the, the race set before us. Philippians 3 verse 13 says, Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Some of us have to forget what lies behind. Some of us have to forget where we froze and faltered and failed. Some of us have to forget how painful things were and what was done to us or what we did to other people. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. God is using us to write his story and all he asks is that we don't get bogged down in what we didn't do and how we failed and what we didn't know and where we failed and what we don't have and what we didn't get and what we never will be, but that we will press forward for the prize and your prize can only be won by you. You're not competing against millions of other people. You, you know, when I was a kid, that was when I was last in running races when I was a kid and and I was always second last, you know, there was always somebody just a little bit worse, you know. But we could get in our race and we can get in those things where we're sitting and then we take off the gun goes and we take off and we go tearing down the straight and then I can look to the right and I can see that Mark is faster than me and he's way ahead, you know, and then I can look and I can see that Tony. Tony's getting ahead as well, you know, and Larice is out there and I'm running behind and I'm just so much slower at running. But the thing is, when they get there, they're only going to get one crown. They're not getting my crown. They're getting just their own crown. And so for me, because it does say there's a crown of righteousness that is waiting for us. And so they're going to get, but there's not, it's not going to be that Mark gets my crown as well as his, as well as Tony's and as well as you know, everybody else's. No, he's only going to get his own crown. And the only way that I can not get my crown is if I don't finish the race, if I don't get up one more time than I fell down because nobody else is going to get my crown. It's for me. It's been set aside for me and it's so incredibly powerful. There's a story, it's about 100 years old and it's about about some Russian martyrs when when the communist regime was particularly vicious 
against Christians. And what had happened was they had this group of, of Christians and they stripped them of all their clothes and they drove them out onto this frozen lake and they were naked and they're just standing out there. And um, the soldiers are on the bank and they've got blankets and clothes and they've got fires going and they're cooking sausages and they're just calling out to, the, to those martyrs who are out there on the, on the frozen ice and saying to them, all you have to do is renounce Christ. All you have to do is give up. And you'll be able to, we'll put these blankets around you and you'll be fine. And there's a whole bunch of people out there. And one guy finally just felt like he just couldn't bear it any longer and, and he began to walk back to the bank. And he got about halfway and then he turned around and he looked back at everybody standing there, all his, all, the, all his friends, all the other Christians. He looks back at them and he looked for a while and then he turned around and he went back to them. Now, in the end, that group of people didn't get killed. But afterwards, he told the story that when, that when he looked back, he saw that all those people were was, was standing there with glorious golden crowns on their heads. And Jesus was standing with them and he was holding out this guy's crown. And there was something in that guy that was like, I want that crown. And there has to be something in us that says, I want that crown. And all we have to do is get up one more time than we fell down. Because Abraham won some battles and he lost some. But what made God see him as a friend was that he didn't give up. He moved on from his failures and he focused on the future and he pursued the promises of God and those promises are shaping us even now. We're here because he didn't give up. Now this is the point. The church is entering a season of expansion. This is no longer a time for nominal Christianity. You know, Christianity in the West actually isn't even the norm anymore. And we can't enforce people to be Christian. The, the most um, effective, the, the largest churches in the world, the largest amounts of Christians in the world are in Africa and South America and Southeast Asia. And if we looked at a pie chart, Western Christianity is about that big on the pie chart. And so... For us to understand that in those people's cases, a lot of the reason that they're so strong is because they're suffering and suffering has a way of sharply delineating what we are and what we truly believe. But this is the point. We are on the edge of one of the most exciting times in church history. I thank God that I'm alive today. I want to be part of this massive change that is taking place while we live. And yes, the backdrop is troubled and pressured and dark sometimes and sometimes fearful. That's just the backdrop. We are those who can write God's story on a dark backdrop and yet the sacrifice and the joy and the love and the and the the belief in a good God who forgives and loves will be written in such gloriously beautiful letters that the backdrop will fade into insignificance because his story has such power and such beauty and such strength. We're on the edge of this amazing time. This is 
our time. Those heroes of faith are dead, but we are alive. And God has called us also to the heroic. He's called us also to faith. And the book of Acts is still being written. And we are those who are writing it. And we have failed and faltered and frozen just like Abraham did. And we have lost some battles just like Abraham did. But God is the one who writes the story at the end of days. And who you are isn't who you think you are because God sees you totally different. He sees the end as well as the beginning. And all we have to do is get up one more time than we went down for God to put our names down as people of faith. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It doesn't matter if they acknowledge our role in his story. It's about our willingness to keep following him, doing what he called us to, no matter what, laying down our lives, believing that as we do, his story is being written by our obedience and our faith and our sacrifices and our courage. Because remember, it's not the pen that writes the story. It's not the pen that dictates the greatness of the story. It's not the pen, it's the writer. And when the writer takes a hold of any one of our lives and, and brings us into his, his story, I want to tell you, when you look back, when you're in heaven and you look back and see what God has to say about you and what he has to say about me, it will be, it will just blow your mind because we know what we are. Yet God, by his spirit, is able to do abundantly above everything that we could possibly ask or imagine. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you, Lord God, we know our weakness. We know our weakness. Lord, there, there ain't nothing that's hidden that from us, Lord. We know the things that we're ashamed of and embarrassed by. We know the places where we look back and think, I wish I hadn't done it that way and now I can't fix it. But Lord, it's just mind-blowing to think that all you're asking of us is to stand up one more time. All you're asking of us is to come to you one more time. All you're asking of us is to say, I'm going to go again. And Lord, that as we do that, you move by your spirit and that you will use our lives. Father, I pray for revelation of that in each one of us, Lord, that we will lay hold of that and that we'll be able to move in you. And Lord, look back and see the story you wrote using our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our Sunday podcast. If you enjoyed it, either subscribe or follow on the podcast app that you use to keep up to date on when our next Sunday podcast gets released. Have a safe and blessed week.